This is Andrew Blumenfeld. You're listening to the Money in Politics podcast. Digital fundraising, digital spending, it's been an issue of major interest in the political world. And especially as of late, it seems that our current homebound situation that we all find ourselves in has really heightened the amount of attention that is paid to digital campaigning. I imagine it's probably forced even the last old school holdouts to at least consider how they might incorporate some digital strategy and tactics into all aspects of their work. That's definitely a good thing overall. I'm a big believer in the power of innovation, and I've seen a lot of that in the digital space and digital fundraising in these last bunch of years. But in my humble opinion, there are definitely a load of misconceptions out there and also some potential pitfalls. I'm excited to chat through all of that with you guys today. A lot of candidates, for instance, I think are convinced that their Twitter following alone will fund their campaigns or that they'll just be able to blast out a bunch of emails and see hundreds of thousands of dollars pour back. And I also worry about how this infatuation with small dollar online donors is contributing to hyperpolarization, that there's an incentive to message things in an especially dire, extreme, or blunt way. So that's why today I'm talking with Toby Fallsgraf. Toby is the chief strategy officer of Do Big Things. That's a progressive digital message and media strategy agency that, quote, these are their words, rejects the tactics that make our inboxes and news feeds toxic. I love that, and I'm so excited to be chatting with Toby today. He has been on the front lines of digital fundraising operations at the highest levels for more than a decade. I'm really glad to be speaking with him. But first, a quick message from Call Time AI. You're listening to Money in Politics, brought to you by Call Time AI. Campaigning is hard. Why not make fundraising easy? Using automation and artificial intelligence, CallTime AI lets you fundraise five times faster with easy-to-use tools like instant donor research, automated voicemail drop, and donor scoring, so that you are always calling the right person at the right time with the right ask. Go online to calltime.ai to schedule a demo and start your free trial today. Well, hey, I'm here with Toby Fallsgraf. Toby, thanks so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, before we dive too deep into our topic today, why don't you start by just sharing with folks a little bit about yourself, what it is that you do today in your job, in your life, in politics, and how you got to that place? Sure. So it's a roundabout story, but I'll keep it short. I'm a digital campaigner, essentially, is the way I'd put it. I got my start in journalism and PR and whatnot, and then the internet became a big force. (laughs) I think it already was, but I became aware of it, and the jobs that were out there were in digital. I uh, was the email director for Barack Obama in 2012, and that really kind of crystallized what I wanted to do. Both I was somewhat good at it, but also it was an industry that was growing, and digital fundraising is a huge part of politics, which I was, was is one of my passions. And since then, I did a stint on Hillary and Digital Rapid Response, and was the digital director for Organizing for Action, was the nonprofit that came out of the 2012 Obama reelect. So kind of seen all sides of the digital piece of political campaigns. And yeah, I just keep coming back to the fundraising side. <laughs> within my expertise, I guess. And how has all that changed then? I mean, you sort of were alluding to it just then. But even within the digital age, how have you seen the way campaigns think about spending and raising money change as our fluency with digital tools has evolved over the years? I think that the easiest way for me to think about this is we are all still learning what's possible with digital fundraising. And it's very much a channel of fundraising, like any other channel of fundraising. 
And I think we've finally passed the days where the internet was some mythical creature that could make things go viral and could be your savior if you were a really struggling campaign. You could find your Howard Dean and all of a sudden you raised millions of dollars. I think that those days are are past us and people are starting to be a little more well-versed in the possibility and that has forced them to actually try new things and be willing to devote more resources to digital in general, but also as a revenue source for a political campaign. And let's take like a minute or two detour to talk not just about how it's changed overall, but the topic of the day is how campaigns are adapting given the pandemic. And obviously, a lot of people are suggesting, and I think they're right, that that has caused a shift in thinking even more heavily to the digital space for fundraising, but also just for organizing and just running their entire campaigns digitally. Just curious from your vantage point, what are you seeing right now about how campaigns are leveraging digital tools to weather this storm? Yeah. And I would say in week four of this new era of where everything's really shut down. And so we're still very much in the early stages here. But you're absolutely right. Like People have seemed to acknowledge that digital is one area where the lights are still on. We're still operating our digital campaigns. Social media is just a huge part of every political operation right now because it's the way people are staying in touch. And we've seen campaigns with the traditional fundraising tactics like events and one-on-one phone calls and whatnot using video technology to approximate that type of interaction. I haven't really seen any data or even anecdotal feelings about how it's going, but I can tell you that digital fundraising, at least for some of the campaigns and partners we work with, is still going very well. And part of that is if you acknowledge upfront that this is something that hey, in this moment, this work still matters. And our supporters, you all agree with that. You all get the mission matters. And we're relying on online donations more than ever. It clicks with people and it does give you an added level of urgency. The thing we don't know is whether the downturn in the economy, how deep that's going to go and how long that's going to last, how long this whole era is going to last, as we were talking about off before we started here. But honestly, that's the piece that you never know how that's going to play out. But for now... Campaigns are forced to bring all aspects of their operation online. And so the ones who had a head start, the ones who had already invested in digital are really, I think, still having a semblance of normalcy, even though they're all in different places and working from home and whatnot. But the ones that are just trying to get caught up, they're learning that there are tools out there that can help them reach voters, reach donors, mobilize the people they need to mobilize. And we have six months until the election or six and a half months there's time. But if we're going to be in this this era for four of those six and a half months, they're going to have to invest. Absolutely. It makes me think that one of the things that I have been struck by as I speak with people who work in providing digital tools to campaigns is a lot of them will comment on the shift that they have noticed over the course of their time doing so from having to convince campaigns in the first place that there's some value to what they're doing and then maybe start to eke out some space in their budget for it to today. A lot of them talk about how nice it is that there are actual people on the team whose job it is to be decision makers about digital spending of one variety or another. So it's been quite a shift in just the way campaigns think at their very conception about how they're going to spend their resources. So I wonder from your perspective, and also perhaps changed, maybe even accelerated by the current crisis that we're all living through that's forced us all to look more directly at how we can leverage digital tools, 
How have you seen campaigns think about their spending on uh, digital tools? Has that changed a lot? Do you think campaigns are spending too much on digital tools? Are they spending too little? Is it about right? What's your general evaluation of how campaigns are thinking about the investment in digital tools? Yeah, and I think this is a question you can kind of do a deep dive on that would take more than one podcast. But broadly speaking, we're still in the average campaign is behind the eight ball on this. People are still catching up. Innovation happens on the campaigns that have the biggest budgets. They have, you'll see the presidentials this cycle. A lot of them had operations that were trying a lot of new things, building new tools, using new tools that are on the market, and really innovating in ways that we're not going to learn about until after this election's over because people don't, aren't really sharing this proprietary data. But the average campaign is thinking about digital, and that helps. Knowing that when you launch a campaign, you have to set up your social media accounts, you have to have a website. Those are the basics that I think every campaign understands at this point. Now, whether you've hooked up ActBlue or you have other things like that, a lot of this infrastructure, once you have that in place, the way you can build on top of that is just growing more and more every cycle. And in terms of budget, I think not every campaign has the luxury of being able to spend a large amount of money on the internet and see big returns. First of all, a lot of campaigns don't have a large amount of money to spend, period. The ones that do, not everyone is able to be a darling of the internet in a way that can bring in tens of millions of dollars and all that. So it's it's easy to get people to dream on what's possible out there, but it's also really hard to get people to overcome the startup costs, right? Putting in the time and effort, and when things don't go well, adjusting and not just giving up. I think that's still something that we're, especially for congressional level campaigns. I think it's a hard a hard thing to learn. Not necessarily, it doesn't always go well. That's the problem. I always think that the idea of a return on investment requires also knowing how it is that you're going to measure the return, right, going into it. So there's this idea of having an ROI, but you can't really know if you've had a positive ROI if you don't really know what it is that you're hoping to get back from it. In fundraising, it's obviously a lot more straightforward in the sense that if you're spending X amount of dollars, you hope to get Y amount of dollars back. It can be that direct. But obviously, it's even in that instance, it's not always so clear because it may be that you expect to get that back over a three or six month time horizon. And maybe you don't have six months, but you do have three months. Or maybe it's that you are trying to do something other than fundraise with your digital program. There might be some other goals and, and measuring the return on those goals may be just more difficult than the more purely objective format of dollars. So I guess as you talk to campaign pains and try and frame this up for them, how do you communicate to them the value proposition of digital program in their fundraising operation? When it comes to your fundraising operation writ large, I think it's easy to see how digital can play a big role or a role, period. That ROI question is really important because with fundraising, there is a obvious ROI. There are numbers you can look at and determine whether it was successful immediately and after three months, after six months. That's true in a way for fundraising that it isn't true for other parts of campaigns. No one's able to measure or really asking about the ROI of your direct mail campaign. And if it is, it's after the election's over, right? And so these are real-time data you can use to adjust your program. So when it comes to talking to campaigns about how to think about digital as part of their fundraising operation, I think, like I was saying, not everybody can invest big time and not everybody should, but everybody should try it. And there are a couple ways to get started trying it out with your the supporters you have, even if it's just hundreds or low thousands of people, engaging them and, and talking to them, having an honest conversation about how, why grassroots donations are important 
and why you're building your campaign this way and not another way tends to pay off and tends to actually at least pay for itself. And so when it comes to expanding that audience to strangers and people who might be interested in your campaign, that's where you see a lot of people struggle. And I think that the thing to think about is if you can't also capture the imagination of people in that audience about anything, about your race, about your candidacy, about who you are, what you want to be, if you don't have that voice to be able to do that, the fundraising piece is going to be hard. And that's true for all types of fundraising, not just digital. But it's it's the kind of thing that digital isn't a magic tool or a wand that you can wave and make up for shortcomings of a candidacy or a campaign operation. How does, I mean, you mentioned the communicating the value of the grassroots donor. And I think it's a good point in general that when we talk about digital fundraising, oftentimes the implication, and sometimes it's explicit, is that we're talking about grassroots small dollar contributions. I have always felt that there's a, actually a really strong role for digital to play as sort of echoing effect of your other forms of fundraising that maybe aren't digital. I think it's really smart to serve digital ads to event attendees before and after an event or to people you're doing call time to before or after you call them. But if you're just reaching someone with a digital ad, that's like the only way you're reaching them for the purpose of soliciting dollars from them, digital ad or your broadcast email program. Oftentimes people assume what you're talking about is the lower dollars. You're not necessarily going to get someone to see one of your ads and chip in 2800 bucks per se, but they might chip in 25 100 bucks, that kind of thing. This is a big windup just to say, I'm curious your thoughts. What is the virtue of the small dollar donor? And what is, in this instance, what would be sort of wrong with the large dollar donor? Like as people are kind of communicating that, what what are the, the what's the rhetoric there? What's the reality there around like bad parts about large dollar donors and good parts about small dollar donors? I mean, this is a question we're seeing played out in our nomination process and Democratic side, the cycle. I think small dollar donors and the way the internet has changed the way campaigns can be funded has been a huge democratizing force in our politics. What it means to support a campaign has fundamentally changed over the last 20 years. And a large part of that is because it's internalized now that we making a donation to support a candidate is something you do. It's, it's just like putting up a yard sign or back in the when I was first getting involved in politics I was in high school. The only thing I could do was really like knock doors and hand out sheets and whatnot. I didn't have any money, but I would have given $20, <laughs> didn't buy the, the CD that week that I was going to buy, and I would have happily done that. When it comes to the virtue of a small dollar donor, I don't think there's anything wrong with large dollar donors. I mean, I particularly don't think either individually or as a, a concept that they should. there's anything, <laughs> anything inherently bad about them. But I think the, the, when you ca- talk about the actual value Small dollar donors tend to require, it comes down to a candidate's time. If you're able to build a powerhouse grassroots donor operation, your candidate can spend a lot less time on the phones calling high dollar donors. They can spend a lot less time at events with high dollar donors. That candidate's time is one of the most valuable things you have. You know, Elizabeth Warren's gambit was really interesting, this cycle, in that she didn't do really any call time or all that uh, high dollar events, I don't think. But she spent all this time taking selfies with people. It sent a huge message about what was important to her and was part of her pitch as a campaign. Whether or not it's fair, there's a perception of impropriety with like big money in politics, right? And so, yeah, obviously there has been actual corruption too. And it's not usually by someone who gave $25, right? No, it's, well, it's, yeah, <laughs> it would be 
<laughs> the actual candidate needs to be looked into then if, if, they're, <laughs> if they're susceptible to being bribed by $25 donations. But being able to mitigate that, any perception of that influence is always helpful. And I don't want to conflate that with a $2,500 check doesn't mean that any candidate for Congress is going to be bought off of $2,500. At the end of the day, that should be a very small percentage of their budget. It's about candidates' time and, and what their priorities are. So you mentioned Senator Warren, and you also suggested if you can generate a powerhouse small-dollar donor program, it alleviates the time that the candidate might otherwise spend. And I totally agree that most precious resource any campaign has is their time, and the most precious piece of that is the candidate's time. But I wonder then, is it practical for any kind of candidate or campaign to expect that they are going to be able to generate that kind of revenue from small dollar donations? Or are there certain kinds of campaigns? Certainly, Elizabeth Warren is an obvious example. She checks all the boxes, right? She fits sort of like the progressive firebrand box, which seems to be something that helps generate dollars online. She super high profile, lots of free media running for the highest office in the land, checking off all those boxes. But I wonder, do you have to check off all those boxes? Are there other kinds of campaigns or candidates out there that can reasonably say, no, a meaningful chunk of my revenue is going to come from small dollar donations? And if so, what are the kinds of characteristics of those campaigns and candidates that can reasonably say that? Yeah, that's a great question, because I think that the answer is not everybody can. And especially if you're just getting started, it's not a sure thing. And it would be a gamble for someone running for county commissioner or Congress to decide, I'm only going to raise money online. You have to scramble for all campaign revenue at that level, especially when you're first getting started. But the kinds of campaigns that can succeed are like, as you described, Elizabeth Warren kind of checks all the boxes, being able to be strident in your your policies, but also to really tap into the zeitgeist in a way that you're resonating with what people, not just your candidacy, but what you're saying is meeting the moment and meeting people where they are. The, The reality is, this is also the type of thing that is really successful at fundraising on the phones and at events. It's the same exact thing. And if you're extremely good at it and you're able to put that message and your pitch in front of more people through digital avenues, chances are you're able to build a pretty grassroots operation. And my advice to a campaign who's exploring that would be to do both parts. And then if you're really having success online, you can scale back some of the other work because you can meet your goals. And the real question is, in most campaigns, if they're they're meeting their goals, that's a really good problem to have. But if they're meeting their goals and they're exceeding their goals, they have to make a decision of, oh, do we just raise the goals or do we operate under the budget we thought we were going to operate on? And almost everybody does the former. (laughs) (laughs) Why why leave it to chance? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are some of the underappreciated consequences of the rise of digital fundraising and spending? You've mentioned you've seen a lot of changes, and I wonder if any of those changes strike you as maybe unintended consequences or just consequences that don't get adequate attention? It's hard for me to fully appreciate how much has changed. But when I've talked to people who have worked in politics for 30, 40 years, one of the things I think is absolutely true is people feel a lot more invested, literally invested in this political system. And that has a lot to do with not just small dollar donations, but I think the internet in in general brings candidates closer to the individual in a way that like you never, you know, most people never saw a candidate for president speak, right? Like on TV, in the debates, maybe, but to be able to drive into a city and see them speak was pretty rare. And now everybody can watch every campaign, all two dozen presidential candidates launch their campaigns on Facebook Live and from their living rooms or from their kitchen, from their living rooms. Yeah. Yeah. 
the digital fundraising piece of this and small dollar donors really means that because making a donation to a, a political campaign or a political cause is a, a statement of optimism, right? It's a statement of belief. And I think I think it's a good thing for our democracy, our representative government, to have more people who feel invested and more people who are paying attention. And even though I think it is still a very small portion of our voting populace, I think it is growing. And it's probably, I think I did see a, a stat that was like twice as large as it was in the 90s, among the people who've made a donation to a political campaign. I think it's one of those things that it makes it a little bit more bought in to this idea. Now, I don't know what that means in terms of we're, we've also seen a drastic polarization of our politics, and I'm sure there are smarter people than I who can unpack the influence that the internet has had on that. But in terms of how campaigns are run and how political causes operate, I think writ large, small dollar donors are a good thing. Well, it's interesting that you landed there because I actually was going to, for kind of our final piece of our conversation here, was going to see if I could unpack with you what are some of the for lack of a better term, like ethical implications of all of this. Because let me play devil's advocate to the donating is an act of hope, which I totally agree in a lot of instances it is. But you mentioned polarization, and it occurs to me that sometimes chipping in five bucks can be a act of anger and fear. And so it, it seems to me that one of the underlying facts of digital communication is that not always, but overwhelmingly as compared to, say, an event, or even a one-on-one telephone call time conversation, it's going to be more brief, right? You're going to have to capture someone's attention in the form of a 30-second ad, a 15-second ad, a subject line, a graphic that they see in their Instagram feed, as opposed to if someone's at an event, maybe they hear 45 minutes of speech, they get 30 minutes of Q&A. Someone's on the phone with a candidate, maybe they talk directly with them for 20 minutes. So one of the defining things, it seems, is that is that it has to be significantly briefer and has to capture attention in a different way. And so I've just always wondered, are we running down some, I mean, as a recipient of many political emails, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but you do get some house on fire emails and subject lines and ads that you have to believe at some level are not inspiring hope so much as they are sometimes just inspiring fear and anxiety. Is is that wrong? Or are there ethical considerations here that you think about and that you communicate with campaigns about how to walk that fine line? I'm really glad you asked this question because it's something that it's probably the reason I still do this work and didn't leave digital fundraising is because this is something I'm thinking about all the time. In 2012, on the Obama campaign of Rima, we spent a lot of time testing subject lines, actual copy, and trying to figure out what was going to be the most optimized email we can send right now. And we made a big deal of it. After the election was over, we talked a lot about how effective that was and how much more we think we raised because we were constantly thinking about optimization. I think some folks learned the wrong lesson from that, which is that if you optimize and really turn up all the the faders in the short term and for the short term, then the long-term revenue is going to be even larger. And that's just not necessarily true. I I think one example here, and I don't want to, I'm not going to call out any particular program, but I will allude to some forces here. But I think in the mid-2010s, like 2014, 2015, you started to see a lot more of these all hope is lost, which is funny. When I was saying it's an act of hope, that was literally a subject line that was used a lot by one particular group. But because in the short term, fear and that anxiety and this idea that everything you care about and everything that you put your faith in politically is at risk, that's effective in the moment, right? 
in whether or not it's true. Like Obamacare is the example I would point to here. I'll tell this in a quick anecdote so you can see the what I'm getting at. When I say that I'm not sure it's the most effective, this is the best example I have of why that might not be true. So these campaigns and committees spent years talking about how Obamacare had been repealed. It's gone. It's destroyed. If this is all because under the guise of Mitch McConnell or John Boehner, whoever was passing legislation that was about to, would have been vetoed if they would have actually passed it for years. There's a um, boy who cried wolf effect here, where it kind of desensitizes the idea that Obamacare is an, under attack. But it also, I think, everything's on fire always. When things are actually on fire, your ability to mobilize forces and get people to feel that urgency is a lot harder. And so when the House in 2017 actually passed the bill that repealed Obamacare and they had that pizza party on the White House lawn and there was this moment, this really strong feeling that this was it, they were going to finally repeal Obamacare, it really scared a lot of people. And I think I worked with one organization, Swing Left, that in that moment decided to, before this vote actually happens, we're going to say any Swing District Republican who votes for this. We're going to ask for donations. We're going to split them up among all of the eventual Democrats running against them. We're going to show the real cost to that vote. And then 35 Swing District Republicans voted for it, which means that like, if they had raised $35,000, means they had $1,000 for every campaign, which is, like, as you know, <laughs> not a very effective thing to do. But in that moment, because they had this action they were asking people to take, felt so potent to people, and people were feeling that urgency... They raised over a million dollars, a brand new organization, three months, four months in, raised over a million dollars in 24 hours with a tiny email list, like a very small email list. And the committee, most responsible for winning back the House, let's say, let's put it that way, which had spent years using Obamacare as a motivational tactic, especially from a pessimistic and a chicken little style fundraising tactic. Obviously, they did the same thing Swing Left did. They were raising money or trying to raise money in this big existential moment for them. I'll never forget. Like, that night, I got an email from this organization that said, like, we're having a record day. Chip in right now and help us get to $100,000 raised on the day. And I thought, this group is 50 times as big as Swing Left. Everybody knows. I mean, they have every... This is their peak. This is what they built for for maybe the biggest moment of the entire cycle. And this is their best day. And I think... The trade-off for optimizing and playing fast and loose with those ethical boundaries to maximize the returns in the short term really is a trade-off in the long term for what those, whether people trust you and whether people, your supporters, go to you when they feel the most urgency and feel the most need to, to do something. If the answer isn't you've built that trust and you've treated people like people and with respect, your chances are you're going to end up hurting your own best days. The things you you're, exist to do are going to be just not as strong. That's one example of why I think it's not just an ethical consideration, but I think it's actually a, level, a, a situation where what's effective, what's actually effective, what's at the heart of this, this industry, which is that it is an act of hope. It is an act of optimism. And everything you're doing is not taking that into account. If you're not capturing that in your own, how you're communicating to your supporters, chances are it's not going to be given back to you in the way you need it to. Gosh, that's a really powerful example. And I think it's uh, it, very illustrative of that underlying idea that your, your donors, your supporters, your campaign, which is just people, 
have to be treated like people, right? They have to be relationships that are nurtured and nourished and just like an individual relationship that's based in trust and respect and credibility that's that doesn't change once you start talking one to many as opposed to one to one and, and that's a a very powerful example about how that also i think to your point yields uh returns not just short term but really really over the long term and i'm really glad you shared that story because it's one of the lessons that i think is you can tell when it's been learned by a campaign or an individual candidate or consultants who work with a lot of campaigns that is this a long-term endeavor or is it a short-term one? You just start thinking very differently. Let's go back to that ROI conversation we were having a few minutes ago. You just start thinking about ROI and measuring ROI a little bit differently when you start imagining your time horizon as being something beyond just the returns on this particular email or this particular day. And especially on a political campaign where election day is a deadline, right? A lot of people can justify just just like we can justify eating like crap in this quarantine <laughs> yeah, moment. The quarantine. <laughs> On a campaign, you actually have a date where you know it's going to end. So why are you building for the day after the election? You don't need to worry about that right now. And that's really tempting, right? First time candidates, especially most of them don't succeed, but most of them also don't give up. And so you are trying that you're going to need those people who helped get you almost there the first time to get you the second time. And if you win, even doubly so. Like you're going to need to get them to get you reelected. So you, you're building something that is bigger than one election. That would be my argument anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Well, hey, this has been really interesting and really helpful. I so appreciate you taking the time, especially I know it's not easy managing a schedule during quarantine and you got the family in the house and there's only so much time. So I appreciate you finding the time. And, and I think this has been really useful for folks. So thanks for joining us. This is a big topic. We'll be sure to return to it and discuss it from many angles. Please let us know what you think. You can email us at hello at calltime.ai. And don't forget to subscribe to Money in Politics wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>